0: going to keep on marching. I prayed about what to do on this morning, such a special and full morning for us and felt the Holy Spirit leading me to just continue the series of studies that we've been in now for a while in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter nine. And as we continue this story, this, this, uh, series verse by verse, I just want to go ahead and say up front that the passage of scripture that we're walking into this morning is one of the most difficult passages to, and I'll say these words carefully, clearly and concisely interpret. And I don't just mean the book of Daniel, I mean in the entire Bible. For that reason, scholars and Bible teachers are vastly divided over the various interpretations that are part of this passage. And as I've wrestled with the best way to teach the truths from this controversial text, I've decided it's best to just skip on to chapter 10. So go ahead and turn, no, I'm just kidding, I'm kidding. If you're new around here, you need to know this. We don't skip over hard passages of, of Scripture because we believe that the whole Bible is the inspired Word of God. And that all of it, cover to cover, and maybe even the maps in the back, are profitable for every part of our lives. And so we don't shrink back from digging in to the word of God. And if you're visiting with us, you need to know, that's just how we do it around here. We dig in by the power of God's spirit into all of the word of God, verse by verse, word by word. So here's what we'll do this morning. We'll do what we do every week. We'll jump in where we left off last week. Starting Daniel nine, verse 20 says this. And while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel whom I'd seen in the vision at the first came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Stop right there. There's a lot of details already in there that we could fixate on, but I just want you to remember a few things you need to know as you're contemplating this part of the book of Daniel. Remember, Daniel lived at a time when the Jewish people were experiencing the punishment of God for their sin. You see, because they had rebelled against God, God allowed The Babylonian Empire to come and overthrow Jerusalem and the temple that was there in the capital city, and then take groups of Jews captive to live in Babylon. And Daniel was a part of one of those groups of captives living in exile in Babylon. And while Daniel is in Babylon, he reads the word of God from the prophet Jeremiah. Now this is happening about five to 600 years before the birth of Jesus. So hundreds of years in advance, he begins to see some prophecies unfold. Well, what he sees in the book of Jeremiah is a prophecy that God had given his people and the prophecy was a promise that God was going to restore the Jews to their city Jerusalem in 70 years after they had been exiled it'd be 70 years that God would then visit his people and restore them to their homeland and here's an interesting note attached to that promise and prophecy of God was this point of clarification we saw it at the beginning of this chapter Daniel chapter 9 the promise would be fulfilled as God's people people prayed. And so what does Daniel do? He prays. We talked about these, these last couple of weeks, the powerful prayer of Daniel in verses four through 19. Daniel acknowledges his sin. He acknowledges the sin of his nation. He comes to God in prayer and he asks God specifically to do three particular things, to show mercy in dealing with sin to bring glory to himself and to work in a way that only he could. Okay, so that's the context for what we just read. Daniel's praying that prayer for God to show mercy to his people, glory to himself, and to work in a way that the whole world would see that only God could do something like that. And the reason I bring that up and press in is because we just read, Daniel said, while I was praying that prayer Asking God to do that, connected to a prophecy about 70 years, God sent the angel Gabriel flying out of heaven like a man, and he had an answer for Daniel, an answer for his prayer. Look at verse 22. It says this, he, Gabriel, the angel in the form of a man, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out and I have come to tell it to you for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. That word consider, think about it. I hope you brought your thinking caps this morning because you're gonna need them, bro. This is about to get real. Think about it. Consider what I'm about to say and understand the importance of this vision, all right? So Gabriel comes to Daniel He's praying that prayer, and as he's praying that prayer, an answer comes from heaven. I love the way that it's worded here. It says that God sent his answer to Daniel as soon as Daniel turned his face and opened his mouth to God in prayer. Now, from Daniel's vantage point, there may have been a time delay, but from God's vantage point, God had responded as soon as Daniel had turned his heart in prayer. And I love verse 23 says that he'd responded that way because God, great, loved Daniel. Now, before we move on to the details of this prophecy, I want to make sure we don't skip over that reality. Listen to me, friend. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I need you to hear something today. You are greatly loved by God. You are as loved by God as Daniel. As a matter of fact, the New Testament tells us something really crazy. It is that you are as loved by God as Jesus himself. Romans chapter eight says that those who are in Christ are loved with a special type of love. Not that God doesn't love the whole world, but that he loves his people with a special kind of love and there's nothing, Nothing, nothing we encounter in this life, nothing that we experience even in our death will separate us from the love of God. And so as we pray, we need to know this, just like Daniel. As soon as our hearts are turned to God in prayer and our mouths are opened, to him in prayer, he is immediately responding to you out of love. Every time you look to your God who is your father through Jesus Christ, his heart is filled with love when you look to him and he's immediately responding. As a matter of fact, Listen to Ephesians chapter three, verses 19 through 21. This is something that Paul had prayed that the Christians in Ephesus would understand. He asked that the Holy Spirit would fill them so they could understand something. And it's this, verse 19 of Ephesians chapter three, he says that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever And ever, amen, listen to this. By his great love for you in Jesus, not only is God responding to all your prayers, he's doing far more abundantly than you know. Matter of fact, he's doing so much more than you know. He's doing more than you could ask him to do. Is another way of saying it. God's answering prayers that your little brain isn't big enough to imagine to pray. His plans are so good for you that you can't even chart out a future for your life that would include the goodness and the fullness of the plans that he has for you. Your prayer requests aren't big enough for the work that God desires to do in your life out of his great love for you. And every time you turn your face to God in prayer, he's doing something out of his love immediately. That's more than you can even ask. That's good news, isn't it? church and some of us are really frustrated right now because we don't see what's happening in response to our prayers i know this room's filled with people and those who are joining us online who are watching their life as they pray and seeing nothing take place let me ask you this what would it look like if you really believed what the bible said here like what would it look like if you really believed that god is at work in response to your prayers and what he is doing is more than you're asking filtered through his never-ending love. Well, guess what? That's absolutely what's happening. And that's where faith is essential as we walk through this life. God loves us more than we could ever understand. Just look to the cross. And in our prayers, God is doing more than we could ever No. And the reason I bring that up is not just because it's important for us to know, but it's actually something that we're seeing in this passage of the book of Daniel. You see, Daniel prayed for God to do something very specific. I pointed that out just a moment ago. And God responds immediately with a prayer, but here's the reality. The prayer response that God brings Daniel is actually exceeding and abundantly more than what Daniel is asking God to do. Remember, Daniel's asking God to work for a 70 year period of time to be complete so that God would show mercy. In response to people's sin, show glory to himself so the world would know how great he is and do a work that only God could possibly do. And Daniel is getting a response where God's saying, oh, I'll do that, I'll do that, but I'll do a whole lot more than that. Now look at the rest of our text. Verse 24, here's the message, here's the response. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. That's the Jews and the city of Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place know therefore and understand that from the big, from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one a prince there shall be 7 weeks Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half of the weak, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator well church. I think those verses are pretty self-explanatory. So let's just go ahead and be dismissed. God bless you all. Have a nice day. Enjoy the parking lot on your way out. Here's the reality. There is a lot going on in these verses, and I'm not gonna try to hide behind that reality. What I wanna do is I wanna really start just by showing you how this is an answer to prayer that is more than what Daniel asked God to do. I want us to have the big idea, the clear, plain truth of this text. Then... We'll dig into some of these details before we go. So let me just show you some of the clarity of how God's answering this prayer with something that's more and greater than what Daniel asked to do. The first thing you see Gabriel telling Daniel is when God is gonna work, okay? So that's the first thing that's really clear. He's telling him when God's going to work. Verse 24 says, 70 weeks have been decreed by God. That word weeks, weeks is an interesting word. In the original language of the Bible here in Hebrew, it literally means the word sevens. And in the Bible, it can be seven of pretty much any unit of anything, whether it's time or whatever. So in a minute, I'm gonna tell you why I believe that that word sevens is really referring to groups of seven years, all right? Or a total of 490 years, 70 sevens, 490 years. But for just right now, let's not blow by this. Daniel is asking God to fulfill a promise that he would work in a 70 year period of time, right? We know that, that's the beginning of this chapter. And then God responds to Daniel by saying, hey buddy, I got an even bigger work that I'm gonna do. And it's not in 70, it's in 70 times 70. And some of you might know that number seven represents perfection, and completion. So God's clearly telling Daniel that he is gonna work in his perfect and complete timing. Okay, I'm gonna work in my perfect and complete timing. Next, what you see is that Gabriel's telling Daniel not only when God's gonna work, but what God is gonna do. Verse 24, you might have noticed this, list: six things God is promising to accomplish in his perfect timing. He's gonna finish the transgression. He's going to put an end to sin. He's going to atone for iniquity. That atonement is a sacrifice that pays the price for sin, that covers over the sins of people. He's going to bring an atoning sacrifice for iniquity. He's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. Do you know what everlasting means? good, I don't need to explain it to you, a forever righteousness that never ends. He's gonna seal both vision and prophet. In other words, he's gonna seal this up so that it will be done. And that means he's going to fulfill and verify that the vision of the prophet is absolutely the word that God had promised. And he's going to anoint a most holy place. There will be a temple, a place of worship, that God will anoint through the work that he does in this special period of time. Now you need to remember though, that Daniel's asking God to show mercy, right? It's one of the things, show mercy, God, on the way you deal with the sin of the Jewish people. Daniel's basically wanting God to bring an end to the exile so that Jerusalem can be restored. And God answers that prayer by saying, hey, Daniel, I'm going to do more than just bring an end to the exile that was caused by sin. I'm going to bring an end to sin itself. That's exceeding abundantly above what you just asked. And Daniel's praying for a stable life to come back to the city of Jerusalem. And God says, I'll do more than just bring a stable life to the city of Jerusalem. I'm gonna bring in an everlasting righteousness that will never end. What God is gonna do is exceeding abundantly what Daniel asked him to do. God is going to bring an end forever to sin. And a kingdom will come where he'll establish righteousness on this earth that will last forever. The third thing you see Daniel hearing from the prophet or the, the, the angel Gabriel is not only when God will work and what God will do, but how God will fulfill his word. Look at verse 25. He says, This know therefore and understand that from the going out, of the word to, dis- to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming. Now notice this phrase of an anointed one, a prince. There shall be seven weeks, then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Okay, so notice this. The prophecy centers around the coming of an anointed one. That, that, that word is anointed one, and then it's followed by a prince. Now, a prince can also be translated ruler. And we've seen a lot in the book of Daniel about world rulers. And there's a lot of focal point we'll come back to in just a few moments. So that's a prince or a ruler will come. And then the phrase there, an anointed one, is a very special phrase in the Bible. In the Hebrew, it's actually the word Messiah. There's a New Testament word that's equivalent to that in Greek. Do you know what the New Testament word for anointed one is? You know? It's Christ. Anybody know who Christ is? Does he have a name? Jesus. Jesus. Do you see what's happening here? God, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, is promising Daniel that a Christ, an anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus, will come. When God tells Daniel how he's going to do what he's going to do, it all points to Jesus And Jesus came to this earth, we know, and the first time he came as an atoning sacrifice for our sins so that we could be forgiven of our sin. He came as the king, the ruler, to bring the beginning of God's kingdom to this world. And one day we know Jesus is coming again, And he's gonna establish the fullness of God's kingdom on this world in which only righteousness will dwell and all sin and brokenness will be thrown far from his new creation. Guys, it's gonna be a world where only what is right and what is good and what is glorifying to God can exist. In other words, Jesus is bringing heaven to earth A kingdom where sin will end and righteousness will reign forever because of Jesus. And don't you know that's exceeding abundantly above what Daniel asked him to do? Slightly. And when you put all that together, you get what we call the big idea. The big idea for this passage is this. In God's perfect timing, he will bring an eternal kingdom where sin will end and righteousness will reign forever through the work of Jesus. Friend, hear the word of God for you today. In God's perfect timing, he will bring an eternal kingdom where sin will end and righteousness will reign forever through the work of Jesus Christ. You know, around here, We call that good news. (laughs) And it never gets old, does it? Guys, at the exact right time, our great God is gonna usher in a new kingdom, a kingdom that will bring an end to all the messed up earthly kingdoms of this world. Did you know there's some messed up earthly kingdoms going around? You know that? Well, they're all coming to an end. When Jesus comes back, we've seen this over and over in the book of Daniel, whether it was Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter two or Daniel's vision in chapters seven and eight, something God is hammering home over and over again is that there's a new kingdom coming and there's a new king who'll rule and his name is Jesus. And that eternal kingdom is gonna bring an end to every sinful, broken, painful dynamic of this earth. All the corruption, all the pain, all the sadness, all of the brokenness you live through because of sin, all of that is going to be replaced one day with joy and pleasure and righteousness forevermore. Guys, that's called good news today. Now you can open up your Apple News app. You're not gonna read it there because the world is not telling you the truth. And you're not hearing it anywhere but from God, but it's absolutely more real than any other headline you'll read today. Jesus is coming again. He's bringing an end to all of the mess and he's bringing a fullness to all of God's glory. And guys, I gotta tell you, I find it an absolute shame That this passage of scripture that's clearly pointing to those beautiful truths is something that Christians fight. And argue about in a way that just is not fitting for people who say they're looking forward to a glorious kingdom where they'll spend eternal fellowship with Jesus and one another. As a matter of fact, I've encountered Christians who are so aggressive with their views of the details on these passages of scripture. They accuse other Christians of being unfaithful and ungodly simply because they don't believe with their specific interpretation of the details. That's a shame and we don't want to be guilty of that. So we're not going to avoid digging into the details. We'll do that for about 15 minutes or so, which gives you a calculation on when you're getting to lunch today. But I'm not ashamed to say our pastors do not want to fight about the details of this text. So here's what I'm going to do. You ready for it? We're going to make a deal this morning. I'm going to try my best to help you see what I believe the details in this prophecy are referring to. And if you disagree with me, it's okay. I might disagree with me by next week and that's all right. God greatly loves you and so do I. And when you come up to me after this and you have your doctoral thesis on why I'm wrong, I'm gonna respond like this. Cool bro, God greatly loves you and so do I. Drop that off at the office. (laughs) I got a file for that. Anyhow. Here's what we're gonna do with the rest of our time. We're not gonna fight, we're not gonna argue, right? We're gonna dig into a few of these details for about 15 minutes, and then the end will close by just meditating for a moment on the big idea of this, this passage. So prophecy nerds, start your engines. Here we go and bring out your charts. Daniel's saying something in these these details, and we'll work through them. The first detail we find is that he is giving a message that's pertaining to seventy weeks or seventy sevens. Now there are some people who take that to be a figurative Description as though God is just saying, Hey, I'm gonna work in my perfect seven times 70 time frame. I actually take this prophecy to be a a literal time frame, as though God is saying, Hey, I'm gonna work in my perfect timing. It just so happens that my work is gonna happen within the perfect time frame of 77s. And there are two reasons, at least, that I believe this is literal. The first is because the context of this prophecy occurs in a chapter that is using the basis of another prophecy as its foundation, another time frame that was a literal 70 year time frame. And if that prophecy was literal, I actually take this expansion of that prophecy to be literal as well. Also, we'll notice in a second these 70 groups of sevens they're broken down really specifically. Verse 25 says there are gonna be seven sevens and then 62 sevens. And then in verse 27 at the end, there's a final group of sevens. It's a really specific breakdown. So for instance, if I gave my son a 20 and I said, hey, here's $20, share that with your sisters. You take 10, give them five and five. And if he came back and had $18, and they each had one apiece, I would say, bro, I wouldn't have broken it down specifically if I wanted you to interpret it figuratively. And he'd be like, you shouldn't trust me with money. Lesson learned, son. That's the way it goes. I take this to be a similar thing. Why would God break down so specifically these Little groups of time and and specify, here's the exact number of years if it's all just figurative language anyway. That just doesn't make sense to my mind. So if these are literal periods of time, the question becomes what periods of time are they? Well, most scholars and Bible teachers agree that these would be 70 groups of seven years, that the time frame would be years. So, 70 groups of seven years would equal 490 years in total. Didn't think you were going to come to church and do math today, did you? Well, technically, you're not. I'm doing it for you, so don't complain. Hey, that makes the most sense to me. Because when you actually take that 490 years and you lay that down and you look at all that God is saying he's going to do, it it really makes sense. God says, I'm gonna send my Messiah, the ruler, into my people. As a matter of fact, specifically, he says, into my city. And I want you to notice how precisely God then begins talking about those periods of time. He connects all of those works he's gonna do to coincide with those different groups of timing. And I'm gonna read verse 25, but I'm gonna read verse 25 from the New International Version. I usually teach out of the ESV, but there's something you should know about this translation or the translation of English Bibles. The original language of the Bible, largely here in the Old Testament, was Hebrew. And there aren't punctuation marks in the original language like we have in our English Bible. And here's what that means. English translators then have to try their best to choose where to put the punctuation marks that are necessary for the English language. So they're, they're choosing those based on their best guess. And most modern translations of the Bible actually follow the punctuation of the NIV more than the ESV. And I think they get it correct. Listen to verse 25 from the NIV. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens. Now notice in this, it's a comma and 62 sevens, a period. In the SV, there's a a period in between those. And I I think that that separates the grouping in a way that isn't supposed to be separated. He's saying there's gonna be these two major events. A decree goes out to restore Jerusalem and rebuild it. That's a set of seven sevens. And then an anointed one, the ruler is going to come. And that's gonna happen after the 62 sevens. And it will be, the city will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in troubled times. Notice that breakdown though. First comes a group of seven sevens. That's another way of saying 49 years. And then next he says there's a group of 62 sevens. That's another way of saying 434 years. So the question becomes, what happened then? How can we see if these years really do represent prophecy? And we have the ability to look in hindsight and see, because this happened, this prophecy was given about five five hundred thirty years before the birth of Christ. So we've had sufficient time to see is this really what happened? Well, the first prophecy, the first grouping of forty nine years, says there's supposed to be a decree that goes out at some point in the future to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And the city was to be rebuilt within 49 years from that decree. And it would be a troubled time. There'd be a lot of conflict. Well, the question is, did that happen? And the answer is yes. In Nehemiah chapter two, King Artaxerxes, one of your favorite guys, I'm sure, gave a decree to to Nehemiah. And that decree had an authority given that hadn't been given before, an authority to rebuild not just the wall, but the whole city of Jerusalem. And even though that work was clearly filled with trouble, they had to work with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other because they were under such attack. It was a troubled time. The book of Ezra tells us that the city of Jerusalem was rebuilt within 49 years. So first test of years, comes back really good. Did it happen? Yeah, just like God said. And that brings that second group of years. It says after another 434 years, and that's 434 years after the first seven groups of seven or first 49, or, or, or let me do the math for you. A total of 483 years after the decree would go out to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, this part of the prophecy says Messiah and ruler's gonna come. And I want you to remember how specifically he's talking about here. He says, where's he gonna come? Well, he says in verse 24, it's about Daniel's people and his city. He's gonna come to the Jews in Daniel's city. What's the, what's the city of Daniel? Jerusalem, the Messiah ruler will come into Jerusalem four hundred eighty-three years after the decree to build the city of Jerusalem. That's a pretty specific prophecy, don't you think? I think so. I wonder, did it happen? Is is that? So? Well, when you look at the prophecies, listen in Revelation eleven and twelve, and I'm going to go there. You guys can turn there um, when you nerd out later in the week. But the years that are being referred to here. Are, are years that consist of 360 days, not 365 like ours. And when you do the math, and I'm not going to do it in front of you, I've done enough, that's reached my limit of math, it actually works out that something pretty amazing happened 483 years after Artaxerxes decreed that Jerusalem could be rebuilt as a city. You want to, you want to know what happened? We actually read about it in the Bible, John chapter 12 Verse 12 says this. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard, look at it, that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Look at this. Even the king of Israel, a historic fact. Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem, was recognized as Messiah Christ and ruler by the people of Israel. You know what we call that? We call that God being God and showing off. God's perfect timing, it happened. But let's keep looking at the details of this prophecy or else we're never gonna get home today. Remember what it says in verse 26. It says, after the 62 weeks An anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. You see, the Messiah won't just come in that time frame to Jerusalem. It says, after he comes, he'll be cut off. That word can be interpreted as he'll be put to death. He'll be taken out. He'll be cut away. And in that moment, it says, and he will have nothing in that moment, he'll be cut off, put to death, he'll have nothing. Here's a question Jesus entered on Palm Sunday at 62 weeks or after 483 total years. After he entered, was he cut off? <laughs> yeah. What happened by the end of the week? Jesus would be hanging on a cross, and you know what it would look like? It would look like he had nothing, no kingdom. No power, no clothes not even life itself. He was so cut off, he was cut off from both heaven and earth, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hanging between God and man, cut off from all things, he would appear to have nothing as he's crucified at that cross. You know what we call that? God's word in perfect timing. But if you're keeping up with the math, and I don't suppose anybody, but those rocket scientist nerds among us are, we've only covered sixty-nine of 70 weeks. Right? This all has happened. That leaves one more seven-year period of time that's been prophesied about. Well, what about that last set of seven years? Well, let's keep reading verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, right? after those, those total of 69 weeks, if you include the first seven groups of seven, after those 62 weeks, now notice that phrase, after. After that period, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end shall come with a flood. And to the end, there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. Now here's that remaining seven years. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Okay, so let's, let's finish strong as best we are able, okay? After Jesus is cut off, it says the people of the prince who is coming will destroy the city of Jerusalem and its sanctuary or the temple. And this is where we need to start putting a few things together, okay? We need to remember what we've studied before in the book of Daniel. In chapter seven, God told Daniel that there were gonna be two kings coming. All right, another king was gonna enter the world stage besides King Jesus. So in the prophetic visions of Daniel, you know there are two princes or two rulers. There's an anointed ruler who's Jesus, and then there's another ruler who isn't Jesus. And chapter seven, if you'll recall, if you haven't listened to chapter seven um, in our study of that, go back and listen to it and refresh your memory. But chapter seven says that other ruler who comes and opposes Jesus, He's gonna come from a resurrected Roman empire. That ruler is known in the Bible as the Antichrist. He's gonna come out of a resurrected Roman empire that will emerge at the end of times. We saw that clearly in chapter seven. And verse 26 is being really technical in the language that's being used. Because verse 26 says this, it's not that prince who will destroy Jerusalem and its temple. It says it's the people of that prince, of the Antichrist, who will destroy Jerusalem and the temple. And who were the people of the prince? Where would he come from? The Roman Empire. And the question is, did that happen? Yes. You know this, Rome destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. You know the wicked Roman ruler who did it? Titus, Emperor Titus. You know he was a bad dude or at least (laughs) physically strong and imposing with that kind of name. If you're visiting here, I want to introduce myself. My name's Titus Green. That's the joke. The Roman Empire came just like this text. The people of the prince who would come. The Roman Empire came and fulfilled that part of the prophecy as well. And then you need to notice something else. The destruction of Jerusalem, it says, happens after the 69 weeks or the 69 sevens. But you got to notice this. It doesn't seem to happen inside the last group of seven either. In in essence, those final seven years are waiting for a significant event. What is that event? Well, verse 27 says that the Antichrist is gonna come and he's gonna make a covenant with many. Now, no, without a doubt, that will include Israel. It could actually refer to all the nations of the world. We looked at how he will have the nations under his power. And for those final seven years, the Antichrist will rule with a mighty strong covenant on this earth. But halfway through, he will break that covenant or three and a half years and he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And then during that time, verse 27 says, he's gonna bring desolation. That's why it's called the great tribulation. He will bring desolation and destruction until he meets his final end. And you need to remember, it's exactly what we saw in Daniel chapter seven. Let's just look at those verses really quickly before we close. It says, he, the Antichrist, and 725, he will speak words against the most high and will wear out the saints of the most high and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time and for times and half a time. Okay, so a time is one, times is two, half a time is half a time, all right? That adds up to three and a half times or years. Three and a half years, just like this prophecy of Daniel 9. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. Those who are in Christ, the saints. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve And obey him, meaning Jesus. Here's the reality Jesus is coming again, church. At the end of the great tribulation, he's gonna put an end to the Antichrist who is coming, and he will establish his perfect kingdom on this earth. And do you know why we have reason to believe that? Because every word of God in prophetic vision has happened just like God said it would. You have to turn a blind eye to the fact that history reveals that our God has promised to do something only he could do. If a man made the type of predictions and promises that came true this specifically, this world would hail him as a God. So why don't we receive Jesus as one? Guys, Jesus will come and when he does, that's when the fullness of that sixfold work of Christ will be realized. He'll put a forever end to sin. Now, Christ already died on the cross as the atonement for our sins so that we could be forgiven. But there's a season we're living in where, do do you know this? Sin hasn't come to an end yet. Y'all know that? Some of y'all know that? Some of you wise know that? You see it, right? In all of our lives, in yourself. And he's going to put an end to that. Did you know that righteousness isn't reigning completely on the earth today? Have you looked at Washington, D.C. lately? Righteousness, and there's a day that's coming when it will. Christ will return, and he will establish a kingdom where sin will end forever, and only righteousness will reign. And that brings us back to our big ideas we close. In God's perfect timing, he will bring an end to sin, and righteousness will reign forever through the work of Jesus' church. Jesus is coming again. He is coming again. And and if you are visiting with us, you need to know we are a people who are not perfect and do not claim to be. We are a people who are fine, though, being peculiar to the world around us. We really do believe that Jesus Christ is real and alive It is God in the flesh. And we really do believe that the day is coming soon when Jesus Christ will come again. And when he comes, he will put an end to sin forever. And he will bring about a kingdom that is filled With righteousness. In other words, where only what is right and good and glorifying to God and satisfying to your own soul will dwell forever. There's no doubt about it. Jesus is coming again. So if you are weary with sin, and some of y'all are weary with sin your own and the worlds around you. If you're weary with sin, if you yearn for a world that is supposed to be the way God created us to be, you need to rejoice today. Why? Because Jesus is coming again. And for those of you who feel that pain in your heart, where you know it's not as it should be, that Pain is there because of sin, and you need to know this. There's a day where that pain will be removed because Jesus will make it all that it was meant to be and more when Jesus comes again. There's no question about it. Jesus is coming again. There is one question, though. There is one question Are you ready? It is one thing for us to stand or sit in a room like this and hear me go through this complicated, difficult passage of scripture. It's easy to even check out on that. I realize that. I realize it's hard to do math. I get it. Here's my prayer for us this morning. It is either true or it is not that Jesus is coming again. And it is true, but are you ready? Are you ready for the day when Christ will come to deal with sin once and for all, including yours? Are you ready? If Jesus Christ were to come today and you were to stand before him, are you ready for the return of Jesus Christ and you might say how do I get ready well I've got good news because it's nothing that you do it's everything that he's done you just look to Jesus and by faith trust in him that he did come already the first time to provide forgiveness atonement for the sin that you and I have committed. And if you'll place your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the Bible promises this, everyone who calls on Jesus will be saved in every way they need to be saved. You'll be readied for the return of Christ if you trust in him today as Lord and Savior. You wanna be ready for the return of Christ, then turn to Jesus and in faith trust in him, Jesus is coming again. There's no question about it. The only question is this, are you ready when he does? And I'd like to ask you to bow your heads and let's center to a moment of reflection. And some of you would say, I am ready for the return of Christ. I'm more than ready. Would you give thanks today if that's in you? Would you give thanks that God has so clearly laid out for us the prophecies and promises Strengthen our faith that Jesus is coming again, just like God said. Give thanks and joy. But some of you in this place, some that are joining us online, in all honesty, there was something in your heart. I believe it was the Spirit of God who revealed that in the truth, you would have to say, I am not ready. I'm not ready whether it's for the return of Christ and I'll see him and stand before him as the judge or if I were to die today and see him and stand before him as judge. I'm not ready right now, right now. Do not delay. Today is the day of salvation. Would you call on Jesus? Acknowledge that you have sinned against God you've broken his law and his command and that you can't make yourself right no matter how hard you've tried you can't fix what's broken in you that's why you need Jesus and right now would you call on Jesus in faith acknowledge Jesus I believe that you have come to this earth already lived the life I couldn't live a perfect obedient life before God Jesus I believe you died the death I should have died as a payment for my sin. Forgive me and restore me to God. And Jesus, I'm trusting you as my Lord and Savior. And I'm turning to you. So Christ, raise me up by your power that I would live according to your word. I'm trusting in you. I said, do not leave this place without knowing that you're ready for the return of Christ. Lord, we ask that you would fill our hearts with faith today to believe your word. And God, I know that there's a lot more that we could talk about in the intricacies of one of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible. But I pray that you'd make the plain things, the main things in our heart and that we would live with faith and joy looking for our hope to come in the person of Jesus, knowing he is coming again. May we leave this place by your grace filled with happy hearts in Christ.